0: The reading is from Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, which can be found on 1174 of the Church Bibles. That's page 1174. It's entitled, A Prayer for the Ephesians. For this reason I kneel before the Father, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.
1: Thank you, Alison. Thank you, Kate. Do keep open the Bibles in front of you this morning so you can check that what I'm uh, saying, whether it's true or not, And uh, it's page 1174, if you've uh, closed it, and let's pray as we begin. Our Father, were it not for our Lord Jesus Christ, it would be a presumption uh, to call you Father, but because of him and because of his cross, we come boldly this morning asking that we would receive your word, uh, not as the word of Paul or any man, but as your holy word. Sent for our good, in Christ's name, Amen. Well, God has not finished with us yet, and He's not finished with you, and He's not, thank God, finished with me either. He has not finished with His church. But what does the ideal church look like? I wonder what you would say. Uh, good teaching, great music. Deep friendships, groups for you, for your kids, and most importantly, good coffee. But what does God say is the ideal church? We don't have to guess, actually, because that's what Ephesians four to six, which we'll be looking at over the coming months, describe for us. It is a place where there is no bitterness, slander, or impurity. There are no harsh or unkind words where you can uh, be sure that people will speak the truth to you in love. It is a a place where uh, people do not feel uh, lonely, but are included whatever their background, whatever their sex or marital status or skin color. These things matter much less than being part of the Christian family. It is a place where playing your part is a joy, where you quickly forgive and are quickly forgiven, and it is a place where people are full of God's spirit. Now, as you just hear those words, it may just sound a little bit saccharine, but if you drill down into them and and think them through, I think you will probably admit that that is a place that you would love to belong to, and a place that your heart aches for. And as I say, we'll see more of that over the coming weeks and uh, months. But there is a problem, and the problem is how do we get to, to that place? How do we get there? The problem, you see, is me and you. So often um, we, we know what it is that we, we should be like, so the, the problem isn't knowledge. The problem is power, spiritual power. And that's why in verse 14, Paul resumes the prayer that he half began back in verse 1. He knows that the church is a right muddle and a right mess because it's filled with people like us who are a right muddle and a right mess. But he also knows that God has not finished with us. And so he kneels before the Father... And praise for power. I pray, verse 16, that he may strengthen you with power. And I pray that you, verse 18, may have power. And verse 20, and here really is the goal of the prayer, that his power would be at work within us. Paul is praying that we might experience God's power and all to the glory of God. If his prayer in chapter 1 was for enlightenment, his prayer here is for enablement. If his prayer there was for perception of spiritual realities and all of the riches we have in Christ, his prayer here is for power to be able to grasp hold of those riches together. And God wants us to know not only that he has glorious riches, but that he wants to give to us in answer to our prayers, not out of his glorious riches, because it doesn't actually say that. Literally, it says, according to his glorious riches. It is the difference between the billionaire who um, tips in 200K and the billionaire who tips in 200 million. It is a wonderful truth that God wants to give to us according to his glorious riches, and so wonderful that it does make me wonder why I am so prayerless most of the time. You and I need power, and our power supply comes to us through prayer. simple analogy might just help us to grasp what's what's going on in this letter. The church, or Ephesians 1 to 3, are a little bit like um, my Fiat Punto HGT that I used to own in my early 20s. Bear with me. It really is. Um, this car was far faster than anything else I'd uh, driven before. It used to go like the Clappers. It used to have a bass speaker in the back. It was proper boy racer and everything. It was even christchurch Banstead blue. It was a powerful car, at least uh, by my experience at that point. And Ephesians 4 to 6 are a bit like the journeys I would go on. But the prayer at the end of chapter 3 is like the fuel and the engine and my right foot. In other words, the power. You see, it's... All very well for the, for the car to sit on the drive, but without the power, it doesn't go anywhere. And this description of the church in, in Ephesians 1 to 3 is glorious, and the Lord intends for us to go on a journey, but it's going nowhere without prayer. And so we come to this prayer, which has three steps, each one progressive And we need to take them in sequence if we're to arrive at the goal of the prayer, which is verse 20, and experience God's power at work within us. Well, here's the first step. The first step is there in verses 16 and 17, for Christ to dwell, for Christ to dwell. God's Spirit must strengthen us for Christ to dwell in our hearts. If you just think about it, it it is an awesome truth that he even wants to dwell in our hearts, our sinful hearts. But as we've been reminded in this letter already, through faith in his blood, it is a wonderful possibility. Nonetheless, when you hear about Christ wanting to dwell in our hearts, that might puzzle some of us. I mean, isn't Paul praying here for something which is already true of Christians by definition. Yes, the the Bible teaches that a Christian by definition is someone in whom Christ already dwells. And Jesus himself says so in in John chapter 14, for example. On that day, he says, you will realize that I'm in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Paul also says it in Romans chapter 8. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So you're not a Christian if Christ doesn't dwell in your heart. So what's going on? Well, I think the clue for us is in this verb, to dwell, which is actually a very strong verb. It's it's the difference between living somewhere and settling down. It's it's the difference between a temporary resident and a permanent resident. Lots of very kind people have welcomed uh, Ukrainians uh, into their homes at the moment. And uh, my guess is that in most circumstances that the understanding was that that would be a temporary rather than a permanent arrangement. Uh, After all, you probably haven't let them... uh, do the extension or paint the walls blue and yellow Ukrainian yet. But when Jesus Christ moves into somebody's life, he comes in as Lord and his intention is not to be a temporary resident, but to settle down and to be a permanent resident and to be comfortable there. Our Lord Jesus says, your heart is my home, and I want to be comfortable. And so the question we all must ask is, how comfortable is the Lord Jesus in our hearts? It's a challenging question, because we need to ask, is he comfortable in every room of our hearts? What about the study? The place where our mind and our thoughts and our work are. Is Jesus Christ comfortable there? What about the dining room where our appet- appetites and desires are met? What is it we long for? What is it that satisfies us? Is Jesus at home with that? And what if Jesus were to visit your living room and eavesdrop on your conversations with Your wife, your husband, your family, your friends. What if he were to watch the way you treat them? How comfy is he? And would he be at home in all of the other rooms? The garden where uh, the the habits that you are cultivating, the games room, uh, your leisure time, or the bedroom. Is Jesus comfortable to make his home in our hearts? And every part of it, or, or just some of it, Or are there some rooms where, like a child's bedroom, we've hung up a sign which says, keep out, no entry? And that is why we need to pray for power to let him into our lives, every room. Jesus is either Lord of all or not at all. But Jesus invites us, he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It's a great promise. The more Jesus is at home in our hearts, the more we will be transformed into love and will become love. Love will be us We will be rooted and established in love. So there we have the first step of this prayer. The first step to this powerful Christian life. For Christ to dwell in your heart. And as Christ settles down and makes his home in our hearts. That leads to a second powerful step. Verse 18. That you may have power. Together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So power for Christ to dwell. And the second step is there in verse 18 for gr- power for grasping Christ's love. And again, we need power, don't we, to grasp Christ's love? So many of us feel like we're, we're really stuck in first gear in the Christian life. And that is why Paul prays that we would grasp and know and experience Christ's love. Paradoxically, by the way, it is a a love which is beyond grasping. It, verse 19, surpasses knowledge, but that's what we're supposed to pray for. I think the Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, put this um, better than than anyone, I think, where he, he uses the illustration of honey, and he says, you can know that honey is sweet because somebody's told you it's sweet. And you can comprehend that, and you can say, yeah, I believe that honey is sweet. But you can only truly grasp and know and experience it's sweet by putting it in, into your mouth, and then you really know. Then you really know. And so it is with grasping Christ's love, we, we can know it intellectually, but it's, it's a completely different thing to let that knowledge go from our minds down into our hearts. And for that, it's not, just, it's not a matter of intellectual ability, as if the clever people here are closer to God. It is a matter of spiritual power as God pushes that knowledge from your head right down into your heart, so you taste the sweetness of of Jesus Christ and all he has done. Do you know that? It only comes through prayer. So many of us are desperate to experience Christ's love. We know that we are running on empty in the Christian life and we know that we need this. Let me say that it is easier to experience that together it's just that Paul says that we, we grasp this together with all the saints as we pray together and live together, as we move towards one another rather than holding one another at arm's length. It is then that we are better enabled to experience Christ's love, its width and length and height and depth. See, often we feel, even if we never admit it, that God doesn't love me. Because of my background, perhaps. But as we come together, we are reminded of the width of Christ's love. We look around and see it. We see that Christ's love is there to embrace all kinds of people everywhere. To those who feel excluded. To foreigners. To those who feel hopeless. Back in the first century, it was to Jew and Gentiles. still is. But it is to rich and poor, black and white, male and female, educated and uneducated, religious and non-religious and everybody else. How wide is the love of Christ? And we often feel God doesn't love me because, well, my faith isn't strong enough. I'm full of doubts. And frankly, I'm unlovable. But the love of Christ is long He chose us before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption in Christ. And his grasp on us will not loosen one bit, but will endure until the times reach their fulfillment when every single believer is gathered together under our supreme Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How long is the love of Christ? And we often think and feel that God doesn't love me because I don't deserve it. That's true. But the love of Jesus is high. Because of the Father's kindness to us, Christ came from the highest of heights, from the place of divine majesty. And he came to sweep us up so that now, spiritually speaking at least, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. How high is the love of Christ? And we often feel, well, God doesn't love me because of what I've done. I lie on my bed at night and as I think of what I've done, I'm haunted by my past. And I think, God cannot love somebody like me. But the love of Christ is also deep. We gratified the cravings of our sinful nature. We were, by nature, objects of his wrath. But Christ looked into that cup of wrath and he drank it down to the dregs for you. How deep is the love of Christ? That's the second step in this power prayer. We pray that by the Spirit Christ would be comfortable in our lives, and that gives us power for Christ's love to taste sweet. And that leads to the third and final step power to dwell, power to grasp, and thirdly, power for filling with God's fullness in verse 19. Now, what does that mean? Well, it simply means to be like God to be full of God. So you follow this process. You pray that the Spirit would strengthen you in your inner being so that Christ would more and more be at home in your life. He then begins to flood your life with an experience of his incomprehensible love. And then you become like him, filled with to the measure of all the fullness of God. Not, of course, that you become God, but God is going to be filling your life more and more. So I'm making sandcastles on the, on the beach with my son last summer. Um, I'd send him um, to get a bucket of water and he'd come back with, with a bucket of ocean. And in that bucket... Everything that he had was ocean, but he didn't have the whole ocean in his bucket. But it was all ocean. Well, we cannot contain God in his vast infinitude within us. But we can be full of God. And when we are full of God, then that kind of spills out from us. And it is seen in in the way in which we live. And if you read the New Testament, of course, you, you see people who encountered the love of God and they spilled over. Think of Zacchaeus Christ love me? Take my money, he says. Or the female prostitute Christ love me? Well, I'll break open this expensive jar of perfume and show my love for Jesus Christ. And so now we can see why it is that God's power can be at work within us. It's because God himself can be within us. Just as God filled tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament, now he fills his church and he fills every believer in him, if you are that. So that we can be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Maybe you say, "Well, I'm, I've been coming along to this church for a while, but I'm not experiencing, I'm not seeing uh, this power at work in my life." And I guess the question is, are you praying for it? No prayer, no power. Or maybe you say, "Well, I have prayed, but I still don't experience the power." and maybe we need to ask well have i prayed this prayer not generally this prayer see our prayers reveal our our deepest heart's desire what we pray for is is what we really want if we check our whatsapp messages the last things we ask for prayer for what would it contain would it would it be this other stuff yes but what about prayer for prayer for this See, we say we don't believe in the prosperity gospel, health and wealth and and all that. But what do we predominantly pray for? Thank you so much for praying for my health. It's been um, a real privilege. And I still need prayers for that. But as we had in our prayers this morning, we all need prayers for spiritual power For transformation. What about if you're sitting there thinking, well, I have prayed this prayer. I've prayed this prayer over many years, maybe some of the senior saints here. Well, God has answered your prayers, and you may not be able to see it, but the rest of us can. Your outer body might be decaying away day by day, but inwardly, You're growing day by day and being renewed. And we see it in your attitudes. We see it in the fact that you don't grumble. We see it in the fact that Christ's love spills out from you in your words and in your actions. And your life says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. God is powerfully at work in you and through you. Now, you might not be able to run the youth group anymore, but that doesn't matter. Because when we see you, we have an aim, a goal. We think, well, when I grow up, I want to be like you. And you give us hope. You give us hope that God has not finished with us, that we can change, that we can be different. See, we're all asking, can God really work in me and through me? And the answer is yes, if we ask him to. That's why these final couple of verses is so important. Verse 20, to him who is able. To him who is able to do. To him who is able to do more. To him who is able to do immeasurably more. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Can he do it? You bet he can do it. See, we think that God can't give us the power to forgive that person. Or the power to clean up that room in our heart that we have not been letting him in to. Or the power to move towards and love those around us with joy. Think again, says Paul. It only takes a moment to call 999, but think what great resources it brings to us. And our God doesn't go on strike. Commit to praying this brief, simple prayer. Lord, would you strengthen me so that Christ might dwell in my heart? Would you give me power to taste Christ's love? And would you fill my life and work through me? You can know his power at work in your life. How? It's very simple. You just need to ask for it. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen.